for the rest of us, right? Uh, we're in the book of Galatians, and um, I want to start by reminding you of somebody who you may have forgotten about, and then I'll, I'll try my best to tie that in at the end of the sermon, okay? Do you guys remember a guy? I, you, maybe not. I mean, it's kind of obscure. Uh, his name's Michael Phelps. Does anybody remember that name? Okay, I thought maybe you would. Um, if you don't, I'm going to tell you about Michael Phelps. This man was dominating the Olympic pool like nobody else. Uh, he, was, he was like, if there was a real-life Aquaman, I guess it'd probably be this guy, right? Um, so he was a legendary American swimmer. He won 28 medals altogether, 28, uh, across five different Olympic games, which is impressive in and of itself, right? Like, how can you continue to win medals in that many Olympic games? It's just crazy. And 28 of them. He was the most decorated athlete in the history of the summer games, period. And, and probably will be for a very long time with 28 medals. 23 of them are gold. Yeah. The audible wow is exactly what I expected for that. Three of them are silver and two of them are bronze. And I don't know this to be true, but just thinking through this and thinking through the level of competition, now, I, I believe that Michael Phelps is the same age as me. I think it said he graduated high school in 2003, which was the same year I did, so we're, we're real close. And so I'm thinking, okay, through five Olympics, he probably did like maybe one of the silvers his first Olympics because he's, he's leading into it, but most of the silver and the bronze were probably in his like the fifth season of going through there, because at this place, like, he's, it's not even old, but, like, in Olympic years, like, he is, he is it's, like, t twice as many as dog years, right? So, like, he's ancient in, in Olympic standards because of the way that these kids go through all these things, right? But I wanted to, the, the reason, I bring him up for just a minute because I want to tell you about his training routine. Now, this might not be as, as impressive to you if you are not a swimmer or don't know someone who swims, but it also may be impressive just because you know who I'm talking about. And so by definition, you would expect this to be a lot, okay? So I'm trying to form some context for you. Here's a, his training breakdown. His, he would warm up with jackknife crunches, three sets of 20, push-ups, three sets of 25 to 35, and bodyweight squats, three sets of 25. So that's his warm-up. He would begin in the pool with 50-meter drills, including using a kickboard to isolate upper and lower body on different laps. So he would switch the kickboard from holding it with his hands to holding it with his legs, and he'd do you know, different laps uh, doing that. Now, for those of you who did swim, give us an idea. Uh, 50 meter drill is how many laps on a regular size pool? Does anybody know this? Down and back. Down and back. Okay, thank you. And so this is an Olympic sized pool. He's not practicing in like your backyard pool, okay? He's practicing in an Olympic pool. Um, and then he would move on to moderate intensity swimming distance of 50 meters, 100 meters, 150 meters, 200 meters, with 30 seconds of rest between each interval. And then he would, go, now that's a moderate intensity, then he would do a high intensity swim distance back the other way, 200 meters, 150, 100, 50 meters, with 30 seconds of rest between each of those. And then he would finish doing 12 laps with a pool buoy between his legs, breathing only four times on each lap, I would drown, <laughs> um, and then do five more laps, alternating between sprints and relaxed uh, pace to cool down. Now, why in the world would cause Michael Phelps to go through all of that training, arduous training? What would cause him to do that? What's your answer? Love? It, it could be love his goal. He knew that if he didn't do that, he wasn't going to get those 23 golds or those silvers or those bronzes. He knew that he had to put in a certain amount of work, a certain level of practice, if he wanted the end goal to be what he wanted the end goal to be. Now today, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 2. We're going to cover the whole of chapter 2, so we have quite a bit to cover. Uh, so if you have a copy of God's Word, please go there. Uh, we are going to do some exposition and then some application. That's the way that we're going to go through this. Uh, we're going to go through this verse by verse at first um, so that I can point out some, some highlights to you. And then in the end, the application um, will be pretty pointed, kind of bullet points. So if you're a note taker, uh, you'll have to wait a little bit to fill that in. Uh, but I, I trust it's going to be good for you. And, and also, I did something a little different on our notes today. So if you're, if you're not normally a note taker and you want these, maybe grab them. I put some cross references at, at the top of that uh, to kind of give you some fuller context of some of the other Bible verses or sections of Scripture that you might want to also check out, okay? Um, 
but before we jump into any of that, will you please join with me as, as, as I pray? God, our Father in heaven, we praise your name. We praise you for many reasons, but for one, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Your word is from everlasting to everlasting, and you do not change, and therefore we have great hope. Lord, we confess that even in the face of this revealed truth, our sinful hearts sometimes doubt you. Perhaps you have changed, we think to ourselves. Perhaps your promises will fail. Perhaps you will or have changed your mind, we think. Perhaps you have a new standard for us, or perhaps we will, we will not really make it, or perhaps we're not really yours. But we thank you, Father, that you are patient and long-suffering, that how we feel about these things does not change what you have said, that you're patient with our sinful hearts. We praise you for your words, that they stand the test of all time, and in it we find our refuge from such fleshly thoughts. You have told us that what you have called clean, nothing can defile. You have told us that what you have said will stand and that what you have purchased is indeed owned by you. So therefore, help us, dearest Father. We plead with you this day that you will remind and renew our hearts afresh, that it is not our works which save us, but your grace. And if, if your grace is what we can count upon, and then we can know that it is your good pleasure alone which saves. So let us today, with fresh hearts, cling to the crucifixion of Christ and plead that it might no longer be us that live, but he in us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So I want to start not in chapter 2, because I want to give you a, a map to look at and to see. For those of you who are watching online, um, you, it may be a little difficult for you to see. For those of you who are in here, it might be a little difficult to you, for you to see, but I've, I have a laser pointer that will help me direct your eyes, and I will audibly kind of tell you where it is too. Uh, but I want to take you back first to Galatians 1, 17 through 21. And this is what it says. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and uh, remained with him for 15 days. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. So there are several places here, which we're not familiar with because they're not places of the map that, that we know all that well, and, that, and that's okay. Um, you do have maps probably in the back of your Bible, or you can Google these maps. You can find them I'm going to put them on here or so you can take a screenshot of them if you want to when you get home on, online or, or whatever. So here are some things that I want to show you. This is a video. So we're going to see Jerusalem in the center. He goes from Jerusalem. He goes up to Damascus up here on the right-hand side. From Damascus, he goes down into Arabia. So that's where this area is in there. Now, they, some people think that he actually went to Mount Sinai uh, during this time period that he was there to receive special revelation. We don't know for sure. Um, and then he says he went back up to Damascus, remember, and then he went to Jerusalem. And from J Jerusalem, then he went up on that purple aerial. He goes up to Tarsus uh, for 10 years, and he travels up there where he refers to as, uh, uh, what was it in the text there? Syria and Cilicia, okay? So that's his, I know that was kind of quick, but again, you can go back and look at it on, on your own time. Um, and so that's, that's what he did. And then the other question was, so after 14 years, so now we're in chapter two. So after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me, okay? So what in the world was he doing for that time that he was, he was not at Jerusalem? Because he gives us a, a big gap and, and we've got to fill it in. Now that's why I gave you the cross references so you can see this. But I also have a map here. This is not a video, so I'm going to point to it and I'll describe things for you for us in the room, if you, have, uh, if you can't see, and for those who are online. So you see up on the right-hand side of your screen, Syria, okay? And then kind of up to the left of that is Cilicia, and then uh, the, the other places that are around there, Pamphylia, and the other places in Scripture that have, have been referenced from time to time. Now, um, he went, so if you remember, the, the, down here at the bottom of the screen, uh, towards the right, there's Tyre. So that purple aerial is coming up this way. He, he, basically, he took a boat, and he went all the way up to Tarsus, and then from Tarsus, 
Um, this is when Barnabas, who met him in Jerusalem, came after him to seek him out. And this is, this is what scripture, or not scripture, this is what commentators or people, Bible scholars or whatever, will refer to Paul's first missionary journey. They kind of chunk him up into three missionary journeys. This is his first one, okay? And so he goes from uh, Antioch, which is going to be in the text here. Now, I do understand there's another Antioch, which maybe is kind of weird for you, but this is the Antioch that he's going to be mentioning in the text for chapter 2 today, the one that's by Syria there. I forget the people online can't see my laser pointer. So the one that's by Syria and Aleppo, that's the Antioch that's going to be mentioned in chapter 2. So Barnabas finds him. They go from Antioch to Salmis. And you can see what, what the, you know, Saul, Barnabas, and Mark, which is John Mark. And John Mark will leave once they get to Perga. And that's the dotted arrow kind of thing that Mark returns to Jerusalem. That's where they kind of part ways. Okay, so in Scripture it talks about Paul's a little, a little angry about that, and he doesn't want to join with John Mark later for his second missionary journey. And then that's when he and Barnabas split up. Barnabas ends up taking John Mark with him and doing his own missionary journey and stuff like that. Okay, so, so this, is, this is where he was. This is what he was doing. And so in Scripture, it tells us he, he left from Antioch. He went down to Cyprus, that, that island there. He goes up to Perga. He goes into uh, uh, Pistion, or Pistion, I don't know how you say that, uh, up to the other Antioch, Inconium, Derby, Lystra. He was like stoned there, or, or, or him and Barnabas were going to get beat up or, or whatever in these, in these couple of cities right here. So then they left. And then, so one is him going, and the other is him coming back. And then from, uh, from at Italia, in Pamphylia is where he takes a boat and he goes back down to Jerusalem. Okay, so then that's what he was doing. So then after 14 years, that's when he comes back down to Jerusalem. Okay, now the last map before we actually get into all the text is this. This is a picture of what has happened after. So he comes to Jerusalem for what is going to be referred to as a Jewish council, which I'm going to talk to you about in just a minute, or the text is going to explain in just a minute. From the Jewish council, then he starts what is classified as his second missionary journey, where he goes back up into these other areas. So this is down here in the bottom, kind of leftish, is Jerusalem. He goes up through uh, Caesarea, Tyre, Sidon, all those places, uh, and he goes back up to starting in Antioch and goes through and then goes to all those places. And then he starts to visit some of those other churches that we know about. So Galatia, let me see. I don't know if I have that in here. I can't remember. Okay, I didn't have it in here. Um, I'm going to go back just for a minute to show you which map is best. This map is going to be best right here. Okay, so you'll have to forgive me for this. I thought I had this in here, but I didn't. Um, Galatia and Asia. So if you look, you got Cilicia, Lydia, up at the top, Antioch. Up here, so off of your screen, kind of like... If you're online, you know, three inches up. If you're in the sanctuary, three inches up. Okay, so you've got, you've got Galatia up here, what would be called Galatia, and Asia over here to the left, still three inches up on the screen. Over here is Asia. In Asia, so Galatia, why does that matter? I don't know. Maybe that's because that's, that's the book we're studying. So the churches in Galatia are going to be these ones right here, Antioch, uh, in Inconium, Lystra, Derby, and maybe some other ones that are a little bit more obscure that we don't have, but these ones, okay? And then over here, you can already see it in the left-hand side, Ephesus, right? And so those ones are the other churches in Asia, like, um, like we're going to see in the book of Revelation, uh, the Laodicean church, uh, Ephesus, of course, from the, the book of Ephesians, um, s some other churches that are over there that uh, you would be able to see if I uh, if I had them written down. And if, if my druthers serve me well, they may be towards the end of the sermon. And so you might actually be able to see those there. I think that's where the slide is. And that's why I don't have it here. Now, I know that I just fire hosed you with information. <laughs> the good news is you can go back and listen to this later if you'd like to, if you've missed anything. And you can also look at these maps. They're available on Google. You just have to Google like Paul's first missionary journey, Paul's second missionary journey. You can find these. They're very well, or something like them, okay? Um, so they're very well known, okay? So now I want to get into the text with you so that you kind of have an idea of what's going on. 
So in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I know you have verse 2. I'm just reading. You should have a copy of God's Word. You can follow along on your own. Okay, so verse 1. Then after 14 years, after his first missionary journey, doing all those things, bringing the gospel to those churches, uh, being persecuted with Barnabas, he says that he now goes back, right, with Barnabas, taking Titus along with him. Titus was probably a guy that he met while he was in those uh, 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 Gentile cities. So Barnabas is a Jew, Titus is a Greek, and he's going back for the council in Jerusalem, and that matters for verse 2. So I went because of a revelation that was sent before them, right? Although, now, this is where I'm going to start asking you guys questions, and you can fill this in, because you guys, uh, I don't know if anyone's ever taught you this, so we're, this is kind of a new, so if you're new or visiting today, this is not always how it normally goes, but this is how we're doing the book of Galatians. Um, and what we might do because of time, we might go through just the exposition today of this with you, and then next week we'll cover the application and the rest of the sermon because I'm watching my time leave very quickly and I want to be on time with you. So, so now let the questions begin. You ready? So as we look at this, who went up? This is not a trick question. Who went up? We just talked about it. Paul and... Titus and all of them, right? And it's going to matter in just a minute. One's a Jew. Well, two of them are Jews, if you count Paul. One's a Greek, right? Okay, so you've got to remember who's going up and who he's talking to. So he went up to where? Jerusalem, yep. And it says, why in the text? What does it say in the text? I went up because of a revelation set that he was going to set before them, right? Now, he gives us some extra information here that uh, is in uh, brackets. So he says he's going to go and he's going to set information before them, though privately before those who seemed influential. Hold on to that, because he's going to cover that just a couple more times in the text. What is he covering with them? What's the next sentence? The gospel that he's proclaiming to whom? The Gentiles. Why is he going to set this before the people at Jerusalem? Do we remember about the book of Galatians? So again, we're covering this week by week. Remember what I said? The book of Galatians is written because there's an attack, right? The attack is against the gospel that Paul is preaching, remember? And Paul as an apostle, as a person. So in the text now, why is he going to, he's, he's going to put this before them. Why? In order to... Go ahead. In order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. This is where we begin to, I hope, for you to tie in Michael Phelps and Paul. I'll, I'll tie it for you. So Michael Phelps trains hard to make sure that his training is not in vain so he can win a medal. Paul is going to Jerusalem to set the gospel that he has been preached before the other apostles to make sure that he is not preaching and running his race in vain. You understand now? So he, he wants for his gospel to be tested by those who, in the text, seem influential so that he can have the rubber stamp. Because again, remember why is Galatians written? Because it's an attack against Paul's gospel and it's an attack against Paul. So what he is doing is he is writing to the Galatians to saying, hey, at first... You're right. At first, I didn't go and talk to anybody about anything. I went on my own. I went up to all these areas up in Galatia, where you guys are, and I preached the gospel. Then after 14 years, I went back, and I went to these people who you say are influential, who the church says are influential. Does this make sense now? So, this revelation, I, I think what it is, what this revelation is, is when Peter was given the revelation of what is clean and one, what isn't clean, and basically God delivered to him that the Gentiles can also be saved. And so he says he's, he does this not only down there publicly for the council, but also privately to those who seem influential. And then we get into what he is going to criticize the Galatians about. He says, so here's the, the but in the text. So he's, he's going back and forth from ideas. And he says, but... Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. This is the first time he's mentioning circumcision. This is the key to what is the extra biblical, the extra gospel stuff that he was talking about in chapter 1, if you guys remember, right? So he's talking about, you guys have turned aside 
to another gospel, not that there is another gospel. This is what he's talking about. These, are, these people are referred to Judaizers, and they would say, yes, it's Jesus, but it's also law. Yes, it's Jesus, but you also have to be circumcised. You also have to keep the feasts. You also have to you know, go to the synagogue. So yes, it's Jesus, but it's also these other things, okay? But he says, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Next, yet because of false brothers, so who are the ones who are stirring this up? Are they Christians? No, not, not according to Paul, right? Because they're false brothers. How did they get in? Secretly. That should frighten you just a little. There should have been a, a gasp here. There you go. Thank you. Don't choke yourself. Scripture says that the wheat and the tear are going to grow up together, right? Scripture tells us that. Paul has said that those who are not truly saved are sneaking into the church, and he tells us why. So they slipped into to do what? They slipped into spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Why? So that they might bring us into slavery. What is the slavery that he's talking about? To still be in bondage to the law of which Christ died to set us free from. Paul will mention that several times in several other epistles, this one included, right? I have died to the law and therefore I am now alive in Christ. So these Judaizers are saying, yes, Jesus plus law, and he's saying that's false brothers. Because you are saved by grace alone. They came in to see that our freedom in order to condemn us. So what does Paul do? That should be your next question. This is a big deal. What did you do, Paul? Please tell us. You're in luck. What did he do? To them, he, what? He folded immediately, right? No. It says he did not yield in submission even for a moment. He didn't even give it a second thought. Brother or sister in Christ. This is a big deal. When somebody else holds you accountable, so there's other texts that flesh this out, and we just don't have the time to get into all these. Scripture tells us if it's a conviction to your heart that something is sin, then it is sin. Scripture also tells us, though, that in Christ, all things are permissible for us. Not all things are profitable, he says, but all things are permissible. So for example... There are churches out there that say, hey, you have to read the King James Version only or you're not reading the Bible. That's not in the text. There are churches out there that say women have to wear dresses to church or they're, they're dressing poorly. That's not in the text, right? And so anything that we add to the gospel is a means of salvation. There are churches out there that will say things like, unless you speak in tongues, you do not have the Holy Spirit. That's not in the text. Now, we can get into a whole thing about 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and how that's supposed to be practiced and how we're supposed to feel about that and, and what that's like and all those kind of things. But again, maybe we'll, we'll preach through that book another time. But as we look at Galatians, what he's saying is these are false brothers who are making extra biblical standards for our salvation. So beware of brothers or sisters in Christ who are hanging laws on you, beware of churches that are hanging laws on you that are outside of the gospel. He says, we did not submit even for a moment. And then here's the big thing that you need to understand too. We didn't submit even for a moment. Why? Let's read this together so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Do you even feel the weight of that? I, I, I hope so. Our church and other churches like it and other Gentile churches would be far, far different if Paul had caved to this. Imagine how the other books of the Bible would be written. Praise God that he did not submit to this. Because he sees that the very preservation of the gospel is at stake. This is why things like correct doctrine matter. This is why we have to be students of the word, and you can't just come and get fed on Sunday. You have to be studying the word for yourself. So, verse 6, we're halfway through. And for those who seem to be influential, 
and I love this. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Brother or sister in Christ, I get paid to preach the Bible to you, but I am not, I'm not holier than you. Um, when you go to conferences and you see guys who, like, like MacArthur and Piper, they are great expositors of the word and we ought to, to listen to how they handle God's word for they have been faithful for many years and they have lots of wisdom to give. But they are not holier than you. And if you are in Christ, they do not have any more of the spirit than you either have or can have if you are being filled with the spirit as Scripture tells us we should be pursuing at all times. So he says, and for those who seemed influential, what they are makes no difference to me. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. So again, let's remember, because I've been talking for a while now. He's going to present the gospel, right? Now, who is he presenting the gospel to? Do you guys know? Who, who, who do you think he's... Yeah, the Gentiles in Galatians, in Jerusalem. Who's he presenting the gospel to? Does anybody know? The council, there's Pharisees there. You have not been reading Galatians on your own, have you? Christians, who else? There's some specifics. Study your Bibles before you come here. It's Peter, it's James, Jesus' brother, and it's John. The mega apostles, right? Do you remember what Galatians is written up? You're a second-rate apostle. You're an aftercomer. You're a latecomer. You were just saved on the road to Damascus. You're not even preaching the right gospel, Paul, because what we know is that, yeah, it's Jesus, but you also got to be circumcised. You also got to keep the law. You also got to do these other things. What he's saying is, is, listen, I went and I saw the super apostles, and I'm here to tell you, they added nothing to my message. They added nothing to the gospel. They had no extra biblical super revelation from these super apostles. They gave nothing to me that I did not already preach to you as Galatians. And, and, and by the way, these men who you hold in some super apostle esteem, there is no, look through the Bible, you won't find it. There's no office of super apostle. There's just apostle. And so what the apostle Paul is saying is, look, you hold the, I, I understand that you hold these people in super uh, affections they're super influential over the church and and they should be right they walked with christ i mean jesus his brother james talk about a hard act to follow in that family right i can assume that mary was always saying hey why can't you be more like your brother jesus and he was like man <laughs> but he says in the text those who seem to influential will add nothing to his gospel and then he says on the contrary so in contrast to that when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, meaning any of the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, this is why I question why in the world does the Catholic Church follow Paul and not Peter? They've got it wrong. It's right here in the text. But I digress. So Peter had been entrusted to the gospel to the circumcised. That's also going to matter in the next part of this. Paul to the uncircumcised, and then, he, and then he makes this great statement that should encourage you. He says, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Who is, now ESV does a bad job here. We have to fix the ESV here. Who's the he who worked through Peter? It should be capitalized. The ESV people annoy me often in their lack of proper punctuation for the glory of our God, and that's one downfall, and that's why you can't hold one translation in all authority over the others. They all have pluses, they all have minuses, and so, okay, the ESV should capitalize he, and they should do that in a lot of places. Here's one. So now that we know that it should be capitalized, who's the he? Jesus, or God's Spirit, right? The Spirit of Christ in him. He who is working through Peter, Christ for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, also is working through me to the Gentiles. That's why they couldn't add anything because it's already Jesus. He's already preaching Jesus. And then he goes on in verse 9, and when James, Jesus' brother, right, and Cephas, and now he, that's still Peter, in case you don't know. Paul goes back and forth be calling, be, by calling Peter Peter and by calling him Cephas, and I think that's because of what he's, what the, 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 the run-in that he has with Peter a little bit later. Um, I'm not going to read into it any more than that, but that's just how it is. So, and John, right? The disciple that Jesus loved. Not John the Baptist. Remember, he was, he was beheaded. So it's not him. It's the disciple that Jesus loved that, he, that also wrote John because John's humble like that. Um, but I think, I think there's actually, 
we are all those who Jesus loved, and so that's why he, he writes it that way, in, in my opinion. Okay, anyway, I digress. So, in, so he meets with these pillars. These are the super apostles. And if you had been reading, you would know who seemed to be pillars, perceived grace that was given to me. So when these guys saw the grace that was given to him, Paul, they gave him the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So what they're saying there is, yes, rubber stamp on your ministry. We agree that you are preaching the gospel. We agree that you are anointed, that you are called, that you are set apart for the ministry specifically of preaching to the Gentiles. And Peter is set apart for the preaching to the Jews. And so they said, yes, that's exactly. And then, and then, and then this is how he ends his trip there. He says, the only thing, the only thing that they added to me was this, take care of the poor. And he says, and that was the very thing I wanted to do anyway. So the first thing I'd ask you is this. Are we taking care of the poor? If that is the one thing that these guys told Paul or asked Paul that he should be doing on his journey, how are we doing at that? And I think we can do that as an individual basis. I also think we can do that as a church. But that's the question for that. And then, and then as we continue to go forward, and we're going to do this with some speed, and then we'll be done, and we'll apply this next week, Okay. And, and my wife will tell me I should practice more to make sure I'm in time. And she's absolutely right. Praise the Lord for wise women. So verse 11 says this. Now, there's going to be a shift in the text. There's a but. When there's a but, when there's a therefore, when there's a, you know, conversely or, or whatever, you have to pay attention to the text because he's switching gears now, right? So he just got done. And again, it's so important. He's writing this to the Galatians, whom he went to on his first visit, Okay. And he's writing this letter to the Galatians after the Jerusalem council. And they went down for the Jerusalem council. And what they talked about is in your cross-references, okay? And what they decided was, hey, we don't need to burden these Gentiles with these laws. They just need Jesus, okay? And in the book of Galatians, he's going to flesh that out more too. But that's what was decided. And that's what he took back up there. And that's when he began his second missionary journey to all those other churches that are, that are, that are up there, okay? Okay. So this is all done. The Jerusalem council's over. He's preaching the right gospel. He's going on his way. But then you remember the first Antioch. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. That's strong language. He called him out. They went toe to toe, right? Because he stood condemned. You should instantly be asking, what in the world is happening? This is a big deal. Peter is standing condemned. Paul is going to oppose him to his face publicly before the church. Why? He's going to tell you. So this is the continuation. Four, before certain men came from James. So these are James's buddies. Who's James again? The brother of Jesus, right? He was down there for the, the council. So James is a Jew, just like Jesus was a Jew. So James's buddies are also, yes, and they're coming with Peter, to then build up these churches. So if you think about it, Paul has planted these churches. Think about that. So Paul has planted these churches. These other teachers are then coming alongside to help build up those churches. Antioch is a mixed city with both Jews and Gentiles. Peter's coming there. He knows that other people are coming too. And this is what it says. Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles which, by the way, is no bueno, okay? Uh, if you remember, when they were going to crucify Jesus, they did not go into Pontius Pilate's house. They had Pontius come out, right? Because to even go into a Gentile house makes you in the Jewish law unclean, right? This is part of the deal when they were talking with Jesus. Like, look, Jesus is, even, Jesus is going into these sinners' houses. He's talking to these Gentiles. He's, you know, he's, he's healing... Uh, centurion's servants, and he's going to the Samaritans. What is Jesus doing? He's, Jesus, the whole time he was here, Jesus was unclean by the law. And so what he's saying is here is, these certain men are coming from James. They're going to go to see Peter, who's at Antioch. And, and before they came, uh, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. He's hanging with them. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing their judgment. This is fear of men. That is why Paul says, 
I opposed him to his face, and that's what he stands condemned of. And if you think about it, this is so very Peter, isn't it? Think about Peter. Peter is, a, Peter is just like me. Peter is an A to Z kind of guy. And, and I'm an A to Z kind of guy. Peter's either all in or he is tripping over himself like you wouldn't believe, right? He, he, so, many, so many times. And so the rest of the Jews, so not only this, but because Peter is such a pillar of the church, the rest of the Jews who are there, who are made up of this church, right? So this is a church of Gentiles and Jews together. How awesome is that, right? First century church. This is the kind of church that we read about in Acts, where they're meeting together, breaking bread in one another's homes. This is why this should make sense to you. Breaking bread in one another's homes, also going to the synagogues together, gathering together to listen to the apostles' teaching. And there's an apostle there, and he's eating with them. And then other Jews come, and he says, oh yeah, I forgot. I'm not supposed to eat with you dirty Gentiles, so you can go and meet in the Gentiles' home. We're going to go and meet in the Jews' home, and we're going to separate each other's. Whoa. And so the rest of the Jews are now acting hypocritically along with him. And then this is huge in the text too. So that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. Oh no. Barnabas. You know, we shake our heads at Barnabas and we do the tisk 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 to Peter. Brother or sister, how much of us are acting hypocritically and causing others to stumble? We say we're Christians and there should be this new life and yet it's, it's not there. Where is it? Where is it from Monday to Saturday? It's super easy to be a sold out Christian Sunday mornings from, oh that clock's wrong, from, uh, you know, whatever time, 10.30 to 11.30 or whatever. Or an extra hour if you come for Sunday school. Maybe an extra hour on top of that if we have fellowship. For three hours, anybody can fake it for three hours. You've got to be a real bad actor to not be able to pull it off for three hours. But the rest of these Jews are acting hypocritically. Why? Because their hearts are sinful. We act hypocritically not because we don't know what's true, but because our hearts are sinful. We act hypocritically because we think either no one's going to find us out, or we think this is the time that's an exception, or we just don't believe the gospel. We don't apply the gospel to that part of our lives. And we say, hey, this is easier, this is better, this is faster, whatever. This is more pleasurable. So we act hypocritically along with them. And even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy, it says. And so then, Paul, being a good brother or sister in Christ... Another but here. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, what did he say? I prayed for them. No. Although I, I, he probably did because it's Paul, right? Did he say he just, he just shook his head and he, when I saw that, they're, they're, that they weren't in step, what I did was I found a new church to go to. That's what he says, right? And when I saw that they weren't in step, what I, I talked about them behind their back with the other good Gentiles. That's what I did, right? Now, when I saw their contact was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though, are Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew? If you couldn't follow that, in essence, what he's saying is, what are you doing? You claim one thing and then you live like another. You say we're free in Christ, and yet you force others to practice legalism. And then he goes on, and now in the t- in the this is another thing that I, in my humble opinion, feel like probably the ESV translators got wrong. As you can see in the text, they have the quotes for this discussion. They end the discussion after the question mark. You can see it there, the, the end of the quote. I think Paul is continuously speaking to him in front of everybody with the rest of what he's saying. And I think that I think, for whatever that's worth to you, okay, shouldn't be much, is later in the text, okay? So I think the air quotes continue and he says to Peter also, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. We can't earn it. But 
if our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. What he's saying here, because this is kind of a little convoluted. And by the way, that's okay. Do you know, even Peter says about Paul that some of the things Paul writes are hard to understand. So that's okay. You're in good company. You're in the same company with Peter. Aren't you happy? But if we are endeavored to be justified by Christ, we too are found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? What he's saying is this. If, if the freedom we are practicing in Christ is sin, is Christ then guilty of that sin by whose freedom we are practicing these things? And he says, no, of course not. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Not if the Son sets you free, you're now guilty of all this other sin. That's what he's saying here. He says, and so he makes this reference to, to things like this. For if I rebuild what I've torn down, I prove myself to be a transgressor, right? Um, it's kind of the same idea as, hey, if a dog goes back to its own vomit and eats that vomit, what's going to happen? Well, the dog's probably going to vomit, right? Because it's already made it sick once. And so he says, I have been crucified. Oh, sorry. Uh, for, for through the law, I died to the law, so I might live to God. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. And then he finishes by saying, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You're stuck. So, Paul's unwavering challenge to the church then, and we're going to do this quick because uh, God's word is what's important, not mine, and these are just my points, okay? So, if you're a note taker, fill them in, and we're going to go through them. You ready? This is Paul's unwavering to the church then. What is Paul's unwavering challenge to the church then? I'm glad you asked. This is what it is. It is a contested truth. The contested truth is simply this. You are saved by faith through grace, not your own works. So, I... If you want to do a bunch of works to earn salvation, you're, you're falling short. The law is not what saves us. It's not Jesus plus anything. I'm glad you're here. You should be at church. I'm glad you read your Bible. You should read your Bible. I'm glad you pray. You should pray. I'm glad you tithe. You should tithe. None of that is going to save you. None of it. And, 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 and here's the deal. This is a contested truth back then. So the crucial test for that was the Jerusalem council. And the crowning triumph was what happened in Antioch. And through the rest of the scriptures that Paul is then going to go on to write and Peter is going to go on to write that are explaining to us Gentiles faith by grace and the freedom we have in Christ and that we are a new creation and that we shouldn't walk as the Gentiles do. We should put off that old self and put on Christ. And so this is the contested truth. Faith through grace. And the test is done. Not based on works. Law won't save. The triumph is there. It is in Christ. So what is Christ's unwavering challenge to the church today? See, here is my opinion. You may have a different one. My opinion is the issue that Paul was writing to the, Gentile, or the Gentiles in Galatians when he wrote this letter, especially this section, is not the challenge that the church has today. I think it might actually be the exact opposite. I think that many churches today, I think that many Christians today, I think that maybe even many of us in this room are counting so much on our grace in Christ that we neglect that our lives should actually be different from the rest of the world around us. That people write books and have smiling faces on television that say stupid things like, I'm okay, you're okay, or live your best life now, or hey, you, you, you know, uh, name it, claim it. If you just speak your truth into the universe, it's going to come back to you in rose petals and, I don't know, cotton candy or whatever garbage. I'm sorry, but here's the deal. We are in a place where we are going to begin getting persecuted. 
And the scripture tells us that some of us are going to fold. And so just like Michael Phelps, if you want to run the race, because scripture says all who run a race understand that only one can win the prize. And they all compete for this perishable wreath, but we for an imperishable one. So therefore, run the race with endurance. You see, I think the current travesty is not, I, I don't know about you, I've never been to a church that says to become a member, you have to be circumcised. Okay? Never been to a church like that. And the churches that are the kind of churches that say, hey, women, to be a part of this church, you've got to wear a dress. Hey, men, to be a part of this church, uh, you've got to wear a suit. The churches that are like that, I, I mean, they're dying. Or they're dead, most of them. The churches that have the outward impression of being alive are the ones that are saying, it really doesn't matter what you do or how you live. It's not even about the knowledge of the Lord. It's all about an experience. And I want you to come to church today, and I want you to experience the Lord today, and I want you to feel something about the Lord today. And if that's what you feel, then that's what you are, and that's just how it's going to be. And we can all charge off into the sunset with squirt guns. (laughs) That's, I think, the current travesty. is not legalism. I think it's licentiousness. And the controversial truth, then, on to this next thing, is that there's actually standards for Christians. There's actually supposed to be a change. We can't just say, yeah, I love Jesus, and then the rest of our life be filled with garbage. That is deception. Romans 6 says, Let no sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Make uh, to, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as sin instruments of unrighteousness but instead present yourselves to God. And so somebody might say to me, well, you're just talking about works-based righteousness. And I would say, no, absolutely not. What I'm saying is, I never confuse a chicken with a gopher. Do you know why? Yeah. You've ever heard the saying, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, then it's probably, I mean, it's probably a duck, right? And the same thing is for here. If you claim Christ, you better be different. And if you're not, stop claiming Christ. Because you're making him to be a liar. Now, there are such things as the sanctification process. There are things that take time. There, there, we are to put off the old man and to put on the new man. And that some of those things take time. And as a body of believers, we ought to be filled with grace for one another understanding that we are all working through this together, that none of us are perfect people, I will be the first to lead the charge to say, raise your hand if you're still a sinner saved by grace and you screw up all the time. Yeah, that's me, okay? And I'll be the first one, and I'll charge us into battle as we run the race of sanctification together, and I welcome you to rebuke me in love when you see me sin, because that's what Paul does for Peter, because he loves Peter, and that's what I hope that you're going to do for me. but we also got to be different than the world. And so the cautionary tale, the last thing there, is these letters written to places like Sardis and Laodicea. And on the map, you can see, for those of you who are online, sorry. For those of you who are here, I know it's still small. But right here, towards the left-hand side, you see all these islands that are out here. There's Ephesus. Here's Asia, remember I said that? So there's Ephesus, that was on the other screen. Here's Antioch, there's Galatia up there in the middle uh, by the big body of water there to the upper right-hand side. Ephesus, down here, one of these little islands, I think this one, we'll just say it's this one because you guys don't know. This island, (laughs) the island of Patmos, right? Why not? It's one of these, I guarantee you. The island of Patmos is where John wrote the book of Revelations. And then the book of Revelations is to the churches that are around here. Pergamum, see, they're all in this area. They usually, I don't know if you know this, back in the day, they didn't have running water, so they would often you know, build next to rivers and stuff. Just made good sense. That's where, that's where it's got to go. Anyway, so the Ephesians and all the other places in there. And Sardis, he says, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. In Laodicea, he says the words 
of the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of God's creation, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Matthew 7, Jesus himself, although I believe that's Jesus himself speaking in Revelation. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see, it's not just about believing that Jesus died on the cross. That is how you are saved, absolutely. But if you are saved, your life will be different. And that is what Paul taught us in the very first section of his book to the Galatians. Remember? He says, For you have heard of my life before he who called me was pleased to reveal himself to me. You have heard how I persecuted the church, how I was doing these things, and now I am preaching the gospel, and those who hear about it rejoice in what Christ has done for me. And so the question I have for us or the point that I'm making with this sermon is simply this. I don't think it's legalism that's killing the church today. I think it's licentiousness. I think it's liberty. I think we have stopped being concerned as the church that we are to be holy and set apart. So a long time ago, my coach told me, we're going to practice like we play. Because if you practice like you're planning on losing the game, you're going to get in there and you're going to lose the game. And so as Christians, I'm just here to ask you, are you going to be Michael Phelps in your Christian walk? Are you going to seek to put in the effort, not that your works save you, but through Christ Jesus, Him working in us to have changed and transformed lives that look differently because every day we're dying to self. That's what it says. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives a prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So I hate, I don't hate. I, I think this statement is stupid. But it applies. It's stupid because of what the world has done to it. And as soon as I say it, you're going to be like, you're probably going to groan. Don't actually groan if you weren't going to groan. I've set you up now. (laughs) As a Christian, as a Christian, not that our work saves us, but are we going to do the work that Christ has made for us and set before us, the good works, so that we ought to walk in them? Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for Paul's rebuke to Peter. God, we thank you for his unwavering challenge to the church then, and we thank you for this text's unwavering challenge to the church today. God, we we praise you that this contested truth of the gospel passed its crucial test, leaving us a triumph, and the triumph is Jesus' victory. God, so often in so many churches, even maybe in our own hearts, we have turned that, that victory into a travesty as we misuse it. And for ourselves and for other churches around the globe, there is a new controversy, and it's not legalism. Instead, it's our liberality where any 